Hi, I'm Brandon Poe, founder of Poe Group Advisors and creator of the Accounting Practice Academy. You are listening to the Accountant's Flight Plan Podcast, where we talk about stuff in the accounting world. If you're looking to buy or sell a practice, we are the premier accounting practice intermediary firm in the industry. Check us out at pogroupadvisors.com. If you're a firm owner looking to build a more profitable practice while actually reducing owner hours, sign up for our practice management workshop, which only runs a few times per year. Learn more at accountingpracticeacademy.com. So welcome to the Accountant's Flight Plan podcast. Today, I've got Brandon Hall. He's also known as the real estate CPA. And Brandon, uh, you worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers and E&Y prior to launching your own CPA firm, which is Hall CPA. Um, and you're a CPA, national speaker. You're the founder and CEO of the Real Estate CPA. And you work with real estate investors, syndicates, and private equity funds to optimize tax positions and streamline accounting and business functions. And you also invest in multifamily properties personally. Brandon, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, that's um, that's a cool resume. You've got quite a bit of um, interesting, varied experience for a young guy. Um, give us a little bit of background, like how did you choose accounting? What what brought you to that decision? Yeah, I so I, I went to school at East Carolina University, and I took. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do the first year. I think I like had selected economics or, or maybe law or something as my major. Uh, but I took an economics class, a micro economics class. And it was, it, it kind of just exposed my limited view of the world to, uh, to, to business. I'd always been kind of interested in business, but that class for whatever reason just really hit home for me. So I immediately switched to an accounting and finance double major because I, I still wasn't really sure what I wanted to major in. Um, so I just said, I'm going to do both and then I'll drop one later. And I ended up not dropping one. So went all the way with both, but, uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of the start just kind of happened chance. I mean, I, I'd always kind of been interested in business. I, I had run like a little mulching business. I say business, I had like two clients, <laughs> uh, a lawn care business where I mowed a couple lawns during the summer, just always trying to figure out like how to make money, how to kind of, I don't, I don't want to say game the system, but that's kind of what it was. You know, it's your, your kid, you're trying to figure out like how to get cash with very little efforts so that you can go out and hang out with your friends and do fun things. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I did all of this. I did the lawn care and the, I did a, had a paper route growing up. And um, so, and I always enjoyed economics. Like that was, I never thought about majoring in e- econ, but um, I really enjoyed <clears throat> economics. So, you know what? You know what's funny. So when I when I was a kid, <clears throat> I played a video game. It was a big multiplayer video game. You like have a character and you build up the character skill sets over time. So you got to like go and you know chop down trees and kill monsters and all that stuff. And what I realized, I like got exposed to the economy within the game because you can trade with other players. And I started exploiting the economy. Um, there was like a little way that you could basically trade things that you knew were, were one thing. Um, anyway, w- without getting into it, I loved the economics of it. And my mom would always get so mad that I was like spending all this time, but I, <laughs> I really wasn't even playing the game. I was just sitting there watching my game's bank account go way up. 
So maybe that was really my first exposure to accounting and finance. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, do you feel like getting that finance degree in some ways made you more interested in real estate? Yeah. Yeah. I think that without the finance degree, I, I wouldn't even know that real estate was a thing. Uh, one of the classes that I took, the professor was a real estate investor. He had about a hundred properties. And so when we were going through all of the different financial models and formulas that he was teaching, it was a really tough class. But while we were going through it, he was applying the real life scenarios that he's created through his own investing. And that made me, I had a lot of conversations with him and that made me realize that real estate is a really cool wealth building tool. I remember I called my parents, this is like junior year of college. I called my parents up and I was like, you guys got to buy real estate. Yeah. They started buying some real estate and I was like running the numbers for them on the back end. And, um, and yeah, and then the rest was kind of history. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I was going to, you know, one of my questions was you got your CPA firm. So you, you, you get out of school, you go to work. Did you go to work for one of the big firms right away? Right out of school? Yeah. And, um, you start your own firm. Now, when you started your firm, did you say, Hey, I'm going to develop a real estate niche or was it sort of accident? You did. So it was intentional. Yeah. Yeah. So three months into my, my corporate career. So I graduated college 2013, uh, started with PwC and their federal consulting practice. And I was about three months in where I was just, I was doing the whole, like, what's my passion and my purpose and you know, what the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> with my yeah. life. I've got this big long runway in front of me and I'm not sure which direction to go. Uh, I just, corporate world was just not for me. Uh, I, I didn't feel like my ideas were heard or, or even wanted to be tested. Um, I had like kind of come up with a couple solutions and the team that I was working on was like, absolutely do not pitch that to the client and you're not allowed to talk to them and all this stuff. And so <laughs> for me, it, for me, it was just like, that doesn't make sense. I feel like I'm smart. I feel like I can pitch in and nobody cares. Now, now being a firm owner, <laughs> I also have a little bit more perspective and I would probably tell myself, Hey, chill, your time will come. But yeah. anyway, um, <laughs> so that kind of catapulted me into this, well, I'm going to buy real estate because my parents have been buying real estate for a couple of years now. So I'm going to buy real estate because it works. I can create cash flow and I can quit my corporate job. And I found a website to help me do that. It's called biggerpockets.com. It's big, it's this big like real estate online forum. So I went on and I started asking questions about how to buy real estate. How, how do I make sure that the, that the economics makes sense? What do I need to watch out for? It seemed like a very big undertaking at the time. And through that, I realized a lot of people were asking tax questions. Now I didn't have any experience in tax, but the questions they were asking didn't seem that complex. And I was studying for the tax piece of my CPA exam at the same time. So I'm working at PwC. I've, I've automated about, 80% of my work day, but you have to stay there to quote unquote, build a client, which then we have ethics questions. But anyway, so I've automated a lot of my work and I'm sitting here going, I'm like twiddling my thumbs, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my day. Uh, so I go and start answering a lot of questions in the bigger pockets forums, a lot of tax questions. And so I start doing a lot of tax research and I start finding that I actually really enjoy tax because it's a big logic puzzle and I love logic. I'm a very logical person. I'm not emotional. My wife will tell you the same thing. <laughs> um, I approach everything with logic. And so for tax, tax was great. It was a great exposure to it. Uh, I answered tons of questions. I got the immediate positive feedback and I got addicted to it. I wasn't getting any positive feedback at my day job. 
getting yeah. all this positive feedback from these forums. And so I just kind of, it just kind of snowballed into me writing more and more for these guys. I contacted the, the site administrators. I was like, Hey, uh, you need a CPA to write for your blog. And they said, sure. We've seen you in the forum. Sounds great. So I started writing for the blog. And once I started doing that, I started kind of getting the notoriety within that group. People started reaching out, asking if I was taking on clients. And that's when I said, maybe I should go start a CPA firm. I'd always I'd kind of realized I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to work for somebody else. I also specifically did not want to start a CPA firm because I thought that services firms were hard to scale or not scalable. And I remember talking to one of the guys back at PwC about this and he was like, don't do real estate. There's no money in it for CPAs. And I immediately thought, well, if you think that, I wonder if every other CPA thinks that. So maybe I'll go and start a CPA practice for real estate specifically. So from the very beginning, I said, I'm only going to do real estate. Um, I, I want to see the books of these people that claim that they're wealthy. And I want to see if real estate actually helps people get wealthy and can confirm it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's kind of how it all that's started. That's cool. I mean, that's an interesting way you got into this niche. Like it's, um, it's cool. You got inspired by a professor and um, you got uninspired by, by the big firm, which um, I felt the same way. I came up a lot, a uh, long, long time ago and um, I felt the same way. And, you know, I was at E&Y and it's uh, man, you're just a cog in the wheel. You really are, you know, and at the time I had a lot of animosity. I mean, I really thought that PwC did me wrong. So I switched to their competitor, Ernst & Young. Like I was trying to do an internal transfer at PwC. Turns out my coach ended up blocking it personally. And I was like, F this, I'm out. Uh, one of my buddies worked at Ernst & Young right up the street, same practice, called him up. And he was like, absolutely. Two weeks I was gone. I was over at Ernst & Young. And of course that made all the PwC partners mad. Yeah. Um, and I thought, man, this is great. Ernst & Young's the people firm of the big four. And it was great. But what they do is they hire all the Deloitte, PwC and KPMG people and they put them on teams. <laughs> and so then you're just back to competing the cutthroat and the you know poor leadership skills. Um, and kind of the exact same environment. So I just realized at that point, corporate world's just not for me. But after like going through and running my own firm for uh, about five years now, <clears throat> I've, I've also realized that they didn't, the, the animosity was misplaced. Uh, right. The, the big four is really a great place to have a career. They hire really smart people um, and they've got a lot of things figured out. I mean, yeah. I've spent <laughs> five years trying to be not the big, trying to be very different from the big four. And I keep finding myself as we scale, going more and more closer to that model. <laughs> you realize there's a reason they were doing what they were doing. They've got a hundred years of experience under their belt. Yeah. You know, they've, yeah. they've gone through all the pains that, <laughs> that, I, that I want to stubbornly stumble through myself. So, <laughs> But at the same time, it can be frustrating for somebody who really wants to things to happen quickly, you know, and, and that, that's um, my observation is, you know, an entrepreneurial type of person, they have a different pace. They want things yeah. to happen faster. <laughs> I think that the thing that the big four failed me in was not realizing, Hey, this kid has ideas. Um, let's throw him a budget and let's see what his ideas mm -hmm. become. You know, instead of saying, Oh no, wait your time. You have to wait for five years to be a manager and then your ideas will be heard. It's a, Hey, if you have good ideas that solve solutions, let's throw you a budget and let's let you run with it. It's going to be after our work, 
right? You got to get your day job done. Um, but if you think that you can help, let's support you in doing that. That's where they failed me. If they had done that, I probably would not be here on this podcast today. I wouldn't be running a CPA for myself because I would have been adequately supported. And that's something that I try to do at my firm. But the problem is you, you can't really, as you scale out, you can't have something like that in place because you're going to have managers who have, don't have entrepreneurial experience trying to manage people that want to be entrepreneurs. And yeah. you just, it's just impossible to do in yeah. my opinion. I, I don't know how you handle that at scale. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and they hire so many people. They have so many people coming in on their teams every year, but um, right. well, all right. So let me ask you this. So a lot of, we see a lot of practices and a lot of them are very, what I would call generalist practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got this niche that you've started from, from day one wanting to develop. So what would you say to a CPA who's afraid to narrow their focus? Uh, if you ever bid against me, I'm going to beat you every single time. <laughs> I mean, yep. it's just, it, it, when you are a niche, when, when, you, when you own a niche, everybody knows who you are in the niche or it's very easy to explain who you are. Like, like we run into, we've been trying to get into much larger client bases and they, they first, they don't know who we are because they're looking at all the other big firms, but then they see that we're niched in real estate and all of a sudden we're competing with big firms because we've got the niche. So people, clients value that niche expertise. Right. Um, And if you, I mean, if I'm competing against a generalist CPA, I can, I can outcompete them every single day of the week on real estate tax, because I'm going to tell the client all these things that this general CPA has never seen, or just doesn't even know to talk to the client about because they don't understand who the client is and what their needs and fears are. Right. So I know that because that's all I do at the same time. If I go and try to compete with a a restaurant CPA, if I try to compete with a client on that, I'm going to lose every single day of the week too. So the risk is that my niche is my niche. And if I go outside of my niche, I'm going to have a really tough time competing. I'm going to waste a lot of time and money. But if I'm competing within my niche, I've got a really good chance of setting the tone and, and really just kind of winning all those clients. We also spend a lot of time educating our clients. So we want them or even our non-clients. I mean, we've put out a ton of content and basically we want people to listen to it, to learn from it, to remember us, and then go back to their CPAs and ask them questions. And if they're not kind of, saying the same things that we are, guess what happens? They come and work with us. So the niche is great. It's definitely scary at the beginning though, because it takes a while to get some traction. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're a niche, you know, we're business brokers, but we only deal with CPA firms. So I've been in a niche for a long time and I know what you mean. And, um, and I, I think a bigger firm, if you've got multiple partners and or multiple specialists within a firm, you can, kind of, you can have several specialties going at once, but you've got people devoted to those. And if you don't, then, you know, you're going to get out competed. Mm -hmm. Like you said. Well, the the niche helps you define your marketing messaging too, right? I mean, if I've got a restaurant niche, a real estate niche, a banking niche, a tech startup niche, how do I talk to all the different people that we could potentially, instead I can just focus all my time and effort on just talking about real estate. And there's tons of stuff that I can talk about. 
And everybody in real estate is going to want to be on my email list because they want my content. They're going to want to pay us for the advisory because we've seen it all before. Um, It just allows you to really hone in on your target market and communicate really good value to them. But at the same time, like I said, you learn their needs, you learn their fears, you learn their goals, and you realize at the end of the day, they're all relatively the same in in your niche. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, but the same thing with you, Brandon. I mean, if I'm going to sell my CPA firm, I'm definitely not going to go and find somebody that's just a local general business broker that's selling hair salons and flower shops. Right. Why would I do that? I want to maximize my value. So I'm going to go find somebody that only works or has a significant portion of their book of business being CPA firms. Uh, that, that just makes perfect business sense, right? Yeah. It's the same thing though in your practice. It's I can be a generalist CPA and charge $500 per tax return, or I can niche in real estate and people will pay me 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty. Um, yeah. And, and geography is becoming less and less important. So indeed, <laughs> definitely with COVID, I think that's just expedited people's realization that geography is less, way less important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I got a little something to share with you. So some of the, most successful one of the most successful cpa firms the firm was successful but the the owner was very very successful guy and what he did was he invested with his clients um he would take an equity position in some of their ventures and sort of um become a really close advisor to them um because he was invested along with them Mm-hmm. Um, they became really successful and I've seen others do that. And it sounds like you're doing that as well. Um, or you're investing in real estate separately. Like how does that, how are you finding sort of the real estate business compared with the CPA business? And do you see that real estate portfolio and earnings becoming a bigger part of your overall income? Yeah. So right now I'm investing separately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there was a client in our client group that approached me to start a capital group a few years back and we did do that together. So we in, invested in a couple of deals, deals together, but that's come to an end. Um, and it wasn't supposed to be a long-term thing. So yes, we've thought about that. We've actually thought about trying to figure out how to create like an employee fund at our firm because all of our clients are doing these big real estate deals. They all need capital. Um, so we're, we're sort of, in the, in the works or in the middle of trying to figure that out uh, because it's a great way to align yourself with the client's interests and um, build wealth at the same time. The question is of course, conflict of interest and ethics. And that's what we're trying to weed through right now, just to make sure that that's something that we want to do. But at least for us, most of my team invests in real estate. I've got 17 employees and between the 18 of us, we have over 300 properties owned. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's cool. And most of us are pretty young too. I mean, I'm, I'm turning 30 here into September. Um, I think most of our staff are anywhere between 28 to 35 and we just love real estate. We love it. We, we love everything about it. And because we invest in real estate, because we love it so much, we can talk to our clients in a much different manner than CPAs that are not investing in real estate. It blows my mind how many CPAs will tell their clients, don't invest in real estate. It's a bad deal. Um, I mean, clients don't want to work with people like that. They want to work with people that can lay it out for them and be supportive in helping them make decisions. 
So I think that that's really kind of helped us see eye to eye with our clients, but you know, niching in real estate and investing in real estate has also really helped me understand what works and what doesn't work from an investor perspective. Uh, like I've learned that the real estate deals on the market are good, but they're not the best. The best deals, you have to spend 2000 bucks sending out letters to all the owners in, you know, a three square mile radius. And two of them will give you a call and hopefully you buy one of their properties way below market value. I've learned that building property, buying a $70,000 single family home that's vacant and in really bad shape, tearing it down and building something brand new is a really good economic opportunity and wealth building opportunity. So I think it's just getting exposure to that side and all the different opportunities and just seeing it over and over and over and over and over again to really understand what works and what doesn't work over the long term. That's, that's really what I would say has helped me understand how I want to invest in real estate. Interesting. So you talk about your, your clients, um, for you, what, what is an ideal client look like? What's an ideal client profile and, and why? Yeah. So an ideal client is going to be somebody that is buying larger real estate assets. So commercial or multifamily assets and doing it at scale in the sense of they've got 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 million that they are applying. So we're talking about syndicates and funds. Uh, the reason that we like those people is they, they value accounting services. They need them and they value them because they have to report to their investors and they want to look very professional in doing so. Uh, they really value your advice because they don't want to handle that side of the business. They would rather just pass it to you and then track a few KPIs, get some reporting. So we get to work a little more autonomously. Um, so really just on that business to business side, that, that's what we call our B2B side, our consumer side, which would be like individual landlords that have five to 10 to 20 properties. We do a lot of that type of work too, but what we find is those people are price sensitive. Um, they're very in tune to cash flow, So they're price sensitive as a result. Uh, they want their portfolio to pay for our fees and they're very emotional buyers. They're not buying with logic. So on the, the larger guys, they buy with their, or they, they vote with their dollars, right? So they're going to buy the best firm because they, they know that they can re-raise capital from their same investors if they produce great looking financials and everything makes sense. But on the consumer side, they're, they're, they're going more for cheap. They're very emotional buyers. They buy with market swings. Um, a lot harder to corral, if that makes sense. Gotcha. So some of these clients, you, you, you mentioned KPIs. So you're doing some, some light advisory with them on a regular basis. Like mm -hmm. what, so what are you doing like quarterly or? Yeah. I mean on the larger clients, it's really like weekly. Wow. Uh, yeah. So we've got a guy on our team, Taylor Brugna, who's built out this dashboard for this really large um, private equity fund. And it's, it's just a Google sheet dashboard. He built it out with them. So I can't give Taylor all the credit. The, the guys running the fund are brilliant too. Right. Uh, but anyways, they built this dashboard out together to track these key KPIs and the financial information feeds into the G sheet on a live basis and all the property management information does as well. And so they can just kind of track more macro trends. Nice. Uh, but I mean, at those levels, even a 1% difference on rehab costs, uh, market to market could sway your decision, right? So then the question is, how do you take that information and kind of come back down to earth with the consumer side? How do you show them, hey, if you work with us, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to pay us a nice fee, but we're also going to help you analyze the performance of your portfolio and make decisions. That's actually something we're trying to figure out right now. Yeah. 
yeah, there's a content idea, you know, data driven decision making versus emotional decision making and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like think like the big guys or something. Cause exactly. Cause uh, I mean, there is, I feel like there's a balance. You need data and you need kind of experience and there is some emotion that kind of drives some decision making. Wouldn't yeah. you say like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I think that what I've always tried to do in growing my firm is to put my emotions aside and just think very logically about the business and what the business needs to continue scaling and growing. And that that's tough because sometimes you're playing with people's economic security, right? Like you're thinking about, should I fire this person or should I not? And that is to an extent an emotional, there is emotion that comes with that. But if you can, really put the emotions aside. I find myself having to also set my ego aside. If I can do that and just think about it very logically, then I think that the result is better decision-making at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, one of the best, like best examples of data, data driven decision-making is just the old fashioned AB testing. Mm -hmm. And we do that with our emails. You know, it's like, Sometimes we'll come up with two subject lines and the subject line you think would resonate ends up getting way less opens than <laughs> just some stupid one that you came up with to try, you know? It's funny, you know, like I, whenever I do the AB testing specifically, uh, it always reminds me that I am not nearly as smart as I think that I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the, a couple of lessons like that you've learned from some of your most successful clients? Like um, I'm often amazed at what I learned from clients. Um, any, any good examples come to mind? Yeah. Uh, I mean, one is just that life is a very long game. It's a very long time. Uh, I think that a lot of people, myself included, you know, you start out going, I want to, I want to be rich today. I want to have the wealth today so that I can live my life today. Not realizing that life's a journey and it's a very long journey. It's taken me a long time to realize that, but you know, we've, we've got clients that it's taken them decades to build their portfolio to the point where now they have financial freedom. I think that that fire movement, the financial independence, retire early movement, is really big with a lot of our clients, but a lot of those clients are impatient, right? They want the retirement today. That's not necessarily the best thing for them. I think the very number one thing is just recognizing that life is a journey and, and it goes a really long time. Yeah. That's also good for CPAs because that means if you niche in 10 years, you're going to be the person in the entire industry if you, if you niche, because it's just a long time. Right. It's a long time to build that institutional um, knowledge up. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, so where, I mean, where do you see your practice going in the next five to 10 years? Do you want to continue to scale um, yeah. a firm? Or are you kind of leaning toward more real estate stuff? Like, yeah, well, both, both. both. <laughs> uh, I, I, my, my goal is to blow the CPA firm up as, and just take it to the moon. Uh, when I, when I first started, I wanted to be a top 100 CPA firm which I think is like 45 million or something in gross revenue. I wanted to do it all virtually and I wanted to do it all organically. And 
right now we're, I think we're going to hit like two, six or two, eight this year. It's been about five years since I started it. Um, and that's all organic growth. And w- the snowball is just starting to sort of really get bigger for us. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how far we can take the organic piece yep. before we start acquiring. But then I have, so then I met my current business coach and he runs a $50 million title company out in California. Uh, and he kind of opened my eyes to like larger scale. And then we interviewed uh, Gary Shamus on the Staying Power podcast, which is a podcast that I run. And he grew his CPA firm to 100 million and sold it to BDO in 2015. He bought it from, or he joined his dad's, he joined the firm, which was his dad's firm back in the 80s. So it took him like 30 something years to scale to 100 million. Anyway, when I talk to these types of guys, I immediately go, oh, well, my goal is not big enough. <laughs> so, so I think now what the vision is, it's, it's really, let's get big. Let's go to 100 million. Let's do it within the next 10 to 15 years. And let's create a different type of life for accountants. Uh, you know, we're, pu- we're quote unquote public in the sense that we have tax seasons, but we're also virtual. You know, you can work virtually. Uh, we hold our employees accountable to results, not the time that they log you've got a certain amount of revenue that you have to drive every single year. And as long as you drive that, you have a job. If you exceed that, you get bonuses and pay increases. And I think just kind of creating that type of environment for people to say, well, you know, it's noon and I've got a barbecue that I want to go to with friends for two hours and not feeling bad about dipping out of work to do that. Because at the end of the day, the time doesn't matter. It's the results that matter. So if you can do that and then you want to work two hours on a Sunday, then go for it. Um, so kind of just creating that type of environment for, for accountants in the future is, is what, I, what I ultimately want to do. And the scale just means that I can do that for more people. That's cool. Um, books. If you were going to recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be? How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah, that's a good, good classic. I'm surprised you're, you're not hadn't even hit 30 and you've, you've, uh, you know, that, that kind of, that's an old book that's been around for a long time. Yeah. I actually read that when I was in that microeconomics class. I think the combination of that really kind of put me down this business trajectory, but yeah, it was, um, it was, it's a great book. It really is. It just allows you to, to get, to think about what the other person is thinking and, and try to pitch things to them in a way that's going to influence them to your way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, Curious. Yeah. Does your econ professor know what a big influence he had on you? I don't think so. <laughs> I, do I not bet think he would so. be, I bet he'd be, um, be really uh, touched by it. You know, I should, I should reach back out and let yeah. him know. <laughs> um, okay. What's, uh, what's one little bit of advice or life lesson you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, learn how to market and sell. Yeah. If you want to scale, actually, I'm assuming that your listeners are interested in running CPA firms. So maybe that's a bad assumption, but if you are interested in running any sort of business, your high, the highest and best use of your time is marketing and sales. It's nothing else. Yeah. Uh, you can, you can literally outsource or insource every other function of the business, but the marketing and the sales being the face of the brand that is extremely valuable and it takes a lot. It takes a long time to learn a lot of time. The cool thing though about professional services is that not a lot of professional service owners are good at marketing and sales, meaning that you can, if you're, if you get good at it, you can dominate a market and 
you don't really have to sell people on buying your product because you sell services. And if you can demonstrate the technical expertise to potential clients, then they're much more willing to buy versus like trying to get somebody to buy a widget of some sort. So it's a lot easier, I think, to sell services than a widget, um, at least at the, at the face of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I always heard the quote, like nothing happens until a sale happens. Like nothing right. else in the business takes place without that sale. Um, right. Well, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're currently thinking about launching like a little education platform because uh, we're finding ourselves like kind of having the same repetitive conversations with new clients. And so we were like, what if we do this at scale? And one of the people was like, oh, no, no, people, one of the folks on my team was like, no, people won't pay, pay for that. I was like, yeah, we'll see. And, and last week I sold four, four of those packages. We haven't created them yet. I have no idea what they're going to look like. We <laughs> sold them. And I can, uh, I can help yeah. you offline. We just created uh, accounting practice Academy, which is a oh, cool. virtual, virtual workshop on practice management. And um, it's a lot of work though. I will tell you creating a, a workshop is it's anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I, I would want to build this out to be like a really large piece of our business, like an education platform and a membership site yep. on the back end. Um, it's, it's part of my like overall vision to service the consumer market a little bit better than like one-to-one touch points, which yep. maybe is a different story for a different day. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that the point is just, you know, being, having sales skills and marketing skills allows you to connect with your potential customers a lot better, uh, kind of gives you, a, uh, an abundance mindset. Like, like it's not a, I can't, but it's a, how can I sort of right. conversation? Like even in our firm, we, we have, I, I try to celebrate sales and try to make, make us a growth oriented and sales oriented organization. But it's hard to do. It's hard to do because a lot of tax and accounting folks are focused on being tax and accounting experts. And that's what they, they feel is most valuable, but it's not true. I mean, they, they have no work if you can't sell it. Um, so it, it's just, if you're going to run a practice, it's just understanding that, that sort of mentality, making the mental shift to, I need to be the best salesperson that, that the world has ever seen for an accounting practice or legal or professional services or whatever. Um, and it just takes time. It takes a lot of yeah. failure, a lot of repetition. Yeah. Reminds me of the e-myth. You know, you talk about technician versus the business owner. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've read the e-myth, but that's a good one. Yep. I have. Uh, all right, Brandon, man, this has been a really energetic conversation. Um, love just what you've done in such a short period of time and um, really appreciate you coming on our podcast. Um, how, what's the best way for people to follow you or connect with you? Well, so we, we sort of talk through pains that entrepreneurs face on the staying power podcast. So you can check that out. Uh, we talk to small and large business owners, which is pretty cool. You can also check me out on LinkedIn if you want to connect with me. Uh, I think it's just Brandon Hall CPA on LinkedIn. So either cool. one of those places. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to the Accountant's Flight Plan Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please follow us so that you can get updates when new episodes are released and share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. You can also follow Poe Group Advisors on social media. Please visit our website for more information at pogroupadvisors.com.